0: welcome to, to the thousand voices podcast my name is mujena scary founder and ceo of thousand innovation and i'm your host for this podcast series each week you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. Today, I'm joined by Professor Flora Salim from Sydney, Australia. Flora is an award-winning researcher and respected professor. She is the inaugural Cisco Chair of Digital Transport, School of Computer Science and Engineering, UNSW, Sydney. She serves as a member of various boards of very highly recognized institutions, such as the Australian Research Council, ARC, College of Experts. She received the Women in AI Awards 2022 Australia and New Zealand in the Defense and Intelligence category. Welcome, Flora. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Flora, tell me a little bit about yourself and... What you're doing. And I I know that you've been basically working a lot on the computer vision, on the time series, and all these technical aspects. Can you tell us and our audience in a very easy way what is your work about and uh, what have you been doing in the AI world? So uh, I
1: like I like to start by saying, well, um, data coming from the environment around you, and even from uh, you know basically me- measured but with sensors collected on the from mobile phones, from infrastructure sensing. So even could be uh, sensors in your pocket, sensing and monitoring, tracking. Uh, your activities. A lot of these are actually. We although you mentioned computer vision before. Uh, we we don't focus on the computer vision bit. We actually focus on extracting and um, insights and the most uh, representative patterns out of really large scale big data, big sensor data, or even small scale sensor data out there. So I mean, you can see try you can see try to pi- find patterns in the world, right? By like, for example, comparing. Uh, images of, uh, let's say, in computer vision, like these are cats or thats are, those are dogs. You can find, you can know those uh, those ones very easily. But if you actually, for example, want to find out whether this is actually a pattern of someone having COVID just by the sensor reading, the heart rate, or maybe uh, can we actually even the stress level uh, of this person at the moment in this situation, or do we do we know that you know there will be there, there's a crash on a, a certain location in the city at the moment, and that will impact other several other routes, uh, and therefore we need to actually start to mitigate it at the moment. So, I mean, there's so much information out there, so much sense of, but where do we start looking? How do we actually find this information? How do we find information that are actually new and interesting and actually need to be uh, mitigated? Hmm. Wow,
0: that's wonderful. So. Tell me a little bit about your research and what have you been doing? And I, I know actually you've received a lot of funding from the government, different institutions. Tell us a little bit more about those projects.
1: All right. Uh, maybe uh, just to put it in a succinct way is how do we, how do we learn more from less? Uh, because the, typically machine learning uh, models, they are data hungry. They want more data. It works well when they have, they have huge data set or huge label data, especially. But a lot of our work are very much focusing on a lot of problems where there are real world data, but sometimes uh, the real world data is so sparse or rare. So, for example, anomaly events or things that I have not been seen before. Like, you know, uh, in, in our cases are things like, for example... You may have once-in-a-lifetime event like uh, the lockdown or maybe flood or, um, you know, you might have a f- uh, bushfire. Or, you know, there could be things that disrupted your life. And and it's very hard to learn when you don't have many examples in the data that actually could be used to predict that pattern. So we, we do this for different use cases, for example, for traffic in the city. Uh, I mean, typical way of predicting traffic in the city, uh, you need really large scale data, but, you know, when when there are actually events that have not been seen before, let's say, uh, as I said before, uh, maybe a cyclone or flood or natural disaster or even terrorist threat, like, uh, let's say, uh, an example in our uh, past papers, like uh, the Boston Marathon bombing event, and you don't you don't know how many people take a certain public transport, or how many people actually will will need taxis to go home safely, and and things like that. Things that are unprecedented before. How do you be able to predict demand into the near future, even and also into the further down horizon uh, when you need to start planning the resource uh, resources and allocate resources in time, especially also for things like disasters recovery
0: yeah because we can't you know we can't know they they're happening so it's super difficult to find similar cases and the data in the past yeah in historical data absolutely that's right so h- how do we do it so what's the solution like how do we how do we make it happen
1: uh, we I- in this kind of cases uh, there are multiple ways to do it either um, uh, you can try to uh, to first detect there's uh, changes in the data um, distribution so Things have changed and therefore we need to look into this further. So we've done a lot of work on the aspect of change point detection and anomaly detection. So and then we can look into it further, whether it's actually an anomaly, whether it's actually change of distribution or actually uh, there's a new behavior that we haven't seen before. Uh, And then we can potentially try to look at uh, ways of uh, learning similar patterns uh, in in the past and see whether it, it may not be exactly the same event, but you know, uh, there is potentially similar anomalous or unprecedented events that have happened before. And we can actually borrow uh, the learnings from those patterns in the past and to be able to build a more robust prediction mechanism. Another way of doing this as well is to do adversarial training. So uh, make your AI model to be able to to respond to different kind of conditions that are not seen in the current data set. So we call that adversarial training For example. Uh, another way of, that we are also working on at a moment is called self-supervised learning, which is a mechanism where uh, your label, your data doesn't have to be labeled. You can actually use its own data as a supervisory signal to generate labeled behavior. Say, for example, um, uh, as I said, alluding to a picture of cats or dogs, uh, you may not know that you may not be able have the label that this is a cat or this is a dog or a certain type of dog, a certain breed of a dog, but you'll be able to see that this, picture of this dog is actually a lot similar to the picture of uh, this other dog. And, and therefore, you can then create a supervisor signal that, you know, if we can detect this dog of the similar breed, we can, we can, I can also detect the other dog. So that is something that we're doing, which is, you know, rather than actually, requiring lots of laborious attempt to label the data in form, to train the model. Uh, can we get a smarter model to learn uh, more from the data itself that's already quite thin and sparse and perhaps not labeled and, and enrich the representation in, in that way?
0: Yeah, I remember in one of the previous episodes that we were recording, somebody told me, and I really love this sentence, and that exactly makes sense to To share it with you and and our case. Now, she said that basically AI algorithms are data hungry. (laughs) So it's like, I I just like really like this uh, metaphor that you need to really feed all the time the data, but then there are cases you don't have enough data and the approach that you're mentioning. So this is basically the solution to to move forward. What what do you think about this statement?
1: Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, think about our world these days, right? Our behaviors have changed because of uh, a lot of uh, disruptions in our life. Uh, we're coming out of COVID, right? The uh, lockdown, we uh, lockdown behaviors that have started to actually become an integral part of our life. Say, like you know, you and I are sitting in Zoom or Teams meeting long, uh, a lot more these days than a physical meeting. Uh, but then we start to get into the hybrid world. And this actually has a flow and effects on every single thing in our life, the way we consume information, uh, the way we order our food or, you know, uh, consume uh, everyday things, even the traffic patterns or the, the need. But, you know, for example, if if somebody asks um, a town planner question like, you know, if you can come up with a data-driven model of uh, how many electric, vehicle charges we need in the city, It's it will be much easier to answer this question five years ago before the pandemic, where the behaviours are a lot stable. But these days, behaviour change all the time, uh, and especially with the global warming as well. You know, you've got the heat wave over there. Uh, we've got the flood over here. People make decisions as they go, depending on the weather as well. So there's not much, uh, I mean, data is always there. I mean, there can always be continuous data coming from all the sensors, wonderful sensors in our world, from the traffic sensors to environmental sensors to uh, weather stations on on top of our buildings and so much of these sensors, even sensors from our phones. Uh, But uh, these data, uh, a lot of them are either noise or are actually signals. How do we know that these are actually important signals that we we can use to learn the behavior patterns of people, of individual or society that can be used to to enhance the efficiency, the sustainability, and operation of our our cities.
0: Yeah, that's that's so so true and very accurate. Tell me, tell me, why did you actually come to the AI world and how, how did you start your journey? What was your journey when you were a you were younger, and you know, were choosing what major you want to go and study, and then your early jobs that led all to where you are today. And you know, eventually, you're you're working on very technical aspects. So, how how was what is your AI journey? Tell me about it.
1: <laughs> okay, I think my AI journey as a kid, I, I I just love to work with puzzles, and I love to work with patterns. I like to observe the world, uh, and, you know, one of my favorite subjects in, in primary school and then secondary was actually biology. And I was thinking that I would like to be a medical doctor <laughs> because I love to observe things, how things behave. Uh, but and then I realized uh, what's even more fascinating to me is I can compute these things. Uh, I can start collecting. I, I, I love collecting data and I, I didn't know it was called data collection back then. I like to collect observation basically. Uh, things that happen I like to make marks about it i I, I like to collect um notes about uh, you know um, for example as simple as traffic accidents around the corner or how many near misses uh, and as a kid I like to although it was not funny but i I normally actually collect this data oh there's another uh, near miss that bicycle almost hit that guy and you know I keep collecting i keep collecting this counter in my head. And I, I learned about this pattern, hey, that uh, if this guy make this kind of turn, this is going to happen. You know, all of these different kind of like probability that ha- could happen. I like to do this since I was, since I was a kid over my head. And, and then I realized I could make some computation, I could compute these things. So, and I learned about coding uh, as one of the only girls. So I actually grew up in Jakarta, Indonesia, uh, before uh, we migrated to um, Australia. And I was actually the only girl in the coding class. And as a, I think 11 or 12 year old so, uh, primary school kids. Uh, um, and there was uh, only a handful of those coding classes, um, uh, in the town back then. So I think I might give, I might be giving you away <laughs> my, my age, but, um, and I realized I actually enjoy uh, doing this uh, coding. And um, I ended up, um, you know, becoming yeah. So you know, I, I thought I might. I love doing this, and I want to be a programmer. Uh, so I shifted completely my plan of be, being a medical doctor to uh, being a programmer. And um, so uh, when I did my, when I was in college, I, I chose specialization in computing. And uh, basically, uh, when I did my undergrad, I started realizing, hey, I really like. I really like. Uh, data-driven uh, models. So, uh, of course, back then um, AI wasn't. Uh, it was an AI winter. So, the big thing about uh, in computer science back then during my time, it was also about software engineering. So, it was in the time of the period of AI winter. Um, uh, and then, but I, I I was really quite fascinated with uh, a subject called data mining and machine learning in my course back then. In, um, uh, I started to realize, hey, actually, a lot of this data I, I, I like to collect. Uh, you can actually train a model to learn some patterns and discover, uh, you know, discover patterns the way we as humans discover patterns. Um, so that's how I got into uh, AI, especially machine learning. So I actually started with uh, uh, learning agents, so more the classical AI, but I got into uh, statistical machine learning. And then during my PhD, um, I got into learning neural network as well, and yeah, continue on further during my postdoc. There was the boom of um, uh, basically deep learning. So I, I finished in 2009, and three years after that, uh, there was ImageNet, and you know, sort of the, re, the resurrection of um, of deep learning. So yeah, um, that's why I got into this at the moment, and I, I found that.
0: Thank you so much. It's such an actually inspiring journey, and I know that so many, so many women in our audience they they are so happy that you're sharing that. Um, something that you mentioned, and I read it on on your biography that you are hiring some PhD students. You you're actively looking for new students coming in. What is your challenge in recruiting? Do you have any challenge? Do you do you have like do you care about maybe specific uh, criteria? Or what are the, for example, things that you're looking for in the students that you lo- you recruit? So
1: I always love uh, students who can come up with n- new ideas. So it's rare these days to find uh, students that have the creativity edge. A lot of the focus uh, in computing, computer science, you know, uh, hey, this is an interesting problem. It's really hard. I don't want to work on it. And let's just uh, build on top of these other people's work and do an incremental job. Like, you know, just, a x X percent improvement on, on this. That's great. It's, uh, that kind of rigorous systematic work is needed, but that's not enough. I always love to find, um, new PhD students that have the creative or the talents. To, to actually follow ideas even or get inspiration from beyond computer science or even from other subfields of computer science and adapt it to a, a problem of their own or a new problem or a problem that they're interested in. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And how diverse is the group of students that you see? Do you see a lot of women in the in the students or is actually something challenging?
1: Uh, this is something I've been striving to achieve. So generally, I have to say generally it's very hard to to get diversity in in a lab or uh, you know a research group. So I've just finished uh, basically I've just moved from RMIT to USW. Uh, I'm taking just a handful of them uh, to USW and I'm recruiting a lot more in USW but I've got a, a still uh, many students also at RMIT. So for example just before I move, uh, maybe let's say from uh, at the end of last year. By the end of last year, I would say a bit more than fifty percent in my group are female, and I'm very proud of that. I made it such a more intentional way of recruiting, because female, um, I think women researchers have a, a different way of looking at a problem. They they tend to be. Um, I'm saying they tend to be. right, This is not. Uh, <laughs> A generalization or stereotyping but they tend to be a bit more uh, holistic or actually looking at a problem um, whereas uh, the male the male counterparts they tend to be more specific so i think having that diverse uh is important and not only that in my group i have i've counted i've got more than 12 wow. nationalities <laughs> in group. that's
0: that's impressive sorry
1: so for me, diversity is so important. Yeah, so because uh, I think everyone with their own cultural background brings something unique to the research team. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's so important for the success of the team that uh, the person who's recruiting to recruit the maximum diverse Uh, backgrounds because everybody comes with their own point of view of the world and the problem and they just bring a new you know knowledge the to the table so that's that's actually a big asset and and it's so important do you think you're looking for diversity and you're actually doing more effort because you're a woman
1: that's a good question I, i i think so yes because uh uh I'm becoming more self-aware about this because I knew my my experience trying to break through into competing and then also AI, for example, uh, hasn't been an easy journey. Uh, I had to find basically people who are going to be championing me, uh, although I'm a female, um, and as a look at potentially as strong as my uh, male counterparts. Not not because we are not good, simply because uh, you know there's so much bias in the society. And also, uh, some of us actually have caring responsibilities, and that they are often overlooked in in the opportunity for us to be able to do research. And I think if if women are given more chance, uh, I think they they can perform as well as their male counterparts. And so uh, that's that's sort of like awareness I have within within me uh, even when I'm recruiting for member or a uh, new member uh, of PhDs or postdocs in my team mm-hmm. um, I always look at you know all right how uh, let's say for postdocs how far they've been uh, since they finished their PhD are they actually uh, any career attraction? um but uh, what is actually their contribution and a lot of them um, uh, if you actually take into account those uh, those things um, Although maybe in terms of quantity, the number of output is not as many as the male counterpart, for example, Uh, but they're really good in quality. Um, So this is the thing that we have to bear in mind.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. And I totally agree with you. You are... An award-winning researcher, you've next to the Women EA Awards that you received just this year, you were also the recipient of the RMIT Vice Chancellor's Award for Research Excellence. You you received a, another award from RMIT for Research Impact Technologies in 2018. So 2016, you you received the Victorian Awards in 2013, and, and so on. So the list goes on. Tell me how how do you feel about these awards?
1: So uh, I think it was really, uh, I think it was really good to receive those awards as a way to confirm that you are actually uh, having that impact in terms of research, uh, as well as uh, it depends on the category of the award, of course, it, it may also even be uh, a natural impact to uh, society. So, so of course that was really good to affirm what you're doing, and it, it actually just gives me a bit more boost to to do more. And actually, it also gives platform uh, for me when I got it. Uh, for me, it's a platform to be able to do more, uh, to be able to uh, to push more uh, excellent work. So, research excellence is one thing I'm very passionate about, but it also goes in hand in hand with impact. I think we need to be able to do, to focus on both. Uh, research excellence, which means, you know, OK, you really need to have it, uh, good papers, like uh, publishing good uh, venues, But that's uh, and also come up with something new uh, to the, uh, the knowledge, uh, contributing new knowledge um, into the society. But also, what is the actual impact? How is it applied and how is it actually going to be uh, experienced by the end user? And this is where we need to start. We need to work with the uh, Partners, uh, either the government partners or industry partners, and it just uh, some of these awards—they uh, are not. Uh, I mean, I, some of the awards I got are actually also from assessed by external partners, for example, not just internally. Uh, or so that's actually a, a huge confidence boost that uh, what I work, what I, I produce was valued uh, by people beyond the university or beyond research community.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think that what we need to do more and more is to really celebrate the success of anyone in the world, especially women, especially you know the diverse talent that they had been for for a long time ignored or not being appreciated. So I find these awards very 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 useful. And as you said, like it's it's just a you know something that it gives confidence sometimes. People might not feel comfortable about oh, but I'm not. Uh, do you mean that I'm not confident? So I need an extra boost of confidence? I think it's it's actually it's not about that, but it's a little bit true that we've been tr- we've been suppressing our girls and our women, and in a sense, all of us, even the most confident ones that we can find them. Even even men, they they all have like their little fragilities inside in their being, and we always need to heal those little parts because they all come from our childhood. They car they, they come from our families, societies, at school, and we all need to celebrate each other, no matter what the, what gender we are. It's it's just very much healing for the world, for for ourselves, and and just spreading that positive energy that yes we, we could we can do something today that we couldn't do it yesterday so I just find it you know <laughs> very important to have these awards
1: yeah and uh, I think what's important to say as well is actually uh, expanding the network of women uh, doing this uh, research either in, let's say your fields AI or uh, soil engineering whatever that is uh, once you're into the, uh, you know, you receive the award, sometimes you get connected to other women uh, that you never met before. And that's just strengthening that network. And f- for me, also speaking from experience, uh, when I got my Humboldt Fellowship and the uh, Bayer Fellowship, uh, so Humboldt's from alexander von Humboldt Foundation in Germany and Bayer Foundation as well uh, in Germany. For me, that's, that was one of the periods uh, in my time of, uh, as an academic, that I really treasure so much, where you get you given time to just do research that you want to do, uh, when there's uh, but without any other distraction, just research. Um, we actually funded to do that, and and you know of course being placed in a completely new environment uh, in Germany. Um, uh, and, you know, being in a new research environment, all of this is very stimulating. Uh, it opens up a lot of new ideas, because one thing about uh, all of these awards is also it, you know, it opens all these collaboration opportunities. If you actually, yeah, I mean, not just awards, but grants as well, um, grants. If we don't get new cycle of grants or awards, uh, we end, often we just end up doing the same thing, but deeper and deeper and deeper. There's no, uh, there's rare to get a, an injection of fresh idea, but when you start collaborating, when we start to get into new environment, when we get awards and then we can get new network or new grants to expand collaboration internationally, suddenly we it's sort of like having a, you know, a, a fresh injection of new um, uh, origin originality in ideas again because. Uh, you're interfacing with all a whole lot, lot of different networks. And it can also give you a boost of creativity.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> so, so true. I want to talk about life a little bit. We talked a lot about the technical aspects of your journey and what, what was basically the, the work you're doing. We also talked about how you're feeling about the awards and the emotional part of it. And I think this is a perfect time to ask you this question that... What motivates you every day when you wake up, when you open your eyes? What do you think is your life purpose? I, I really
1: like uh, that question. I think uh, my, my life purpose is, you know, to, to improve, uh, to be able to bring contribution into uh, the quality of life of people around me. So, you know, so uh, as women, we, we are here to bring life.
0: I love that. I love that. (laughs) I love your statement. And I think that's a perfect statement to close up our episode today. So I want to thank you so much, Flora, for, for your time, for all the amazing job that you're doing from there in Australia and all the international impacts that you have. And especially, you know, being a mother and being a very complete woman, it's very very inspiring to see that. So thank you so much for, for inspiring myself today. This was Professor Flora Salem from Sydney, Australia. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Isamy. It is hosted by myself Mujah Naskari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Gary. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices Podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.